Welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Debate Podcast, where consensus is optional, but proof of thought is required. I'm your host, Richard Yan. Today's motion is POS will overtake POW. This is an important topic for a few reasons. First, from an investor's perspective, this is another angle of evaluating BTC versus its challengers, which by and large are POS or moving to POS. Second, this provides guidance to architects of new protocols in making design decisions. If we were to measure the dominance of POW via market cap, of the top 20 coins on CMC, coins with a POW mechanism with no serious plans to migrate to something else, take up 74% of the share of market cap. The two guests we have for this episode are a builder of a highly anticipated POS-based protocol and a creator of an extremely interesting business that simulates protocol behavior to help protocol designers make more sound decisions. I want to note that about 70 minutes into the debate, the discussion shifted to a general conversation about money characteristics of Bitcoin, and this goes on for about 25 minutes. This was not directly relevant to the motion, but I kept it nonetheless for the insights it shed. Make sure to check out our previous episodes too on Bitcoin store value status, tokenization and smart contracts, DeFi, Bitcoin halving, and China's future in blockchain. If you'd like to debate or want to nominate someone, please DM me at blockdebate. Please note that nothing in our podcast should be construed as financial advice. I hope you'll enjoy listening to this debate as much as I enjoyed hosting it. This episode has a very high density of information, at least for me. Let's dive right in. Welcome to the debate. Consensus optional, proof of thought required. I'm your host, Richard Yan. Today's motion, POS will overtake POW, or proof of stake will overtake proof of work. This is an age-old question, and I'm excited to hear inputs from our debaters. So to my metaphorical left is Kevin Signicki, arguing for the motion. He believes that POS will overtake POW. To my right is Tarun Chitra, arguing against the motion. He believes that POS will not overtake POW. Gentlemen, I'm very excited to have you join the show. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Great. Here's a bio for the two debaters. Kevin Signicki is co-founder and chief protocol architect at Ava Labs, where they're building a new high-performance layer one protocol with a focus on disrupting finance. He was previously a researcher and software engineer at various places, including Microsoft, NASA, and American Museum of Natural History. Tarun Chitra is founder and CEO of Gauntlet, a simulation platform for crypto networks to help developers understand how decisions about security, governance, and consensus mechanisms are likely to affect network activity and asset value. He previously worked in high-frequency trading for Vatic Labs and was a scientific programmer at D.E. Shaw Research. As usual, the debate has three parts, an opening statement from both sides, starting with Kevin. The second round is the body of the debate, with me directing questions to the debaters. Both sides are highly encouraged to follow up with their opponent after hearing answers on the other side. And of course, they're also free to respond to each other's points raised during the opening statement. The last round is audience questions selected from Twitter, and we will end with concluding remarks from both debaters. Currently, our Twitter poll shows 59% saying POS will overtake POW, and 
29% saying POS will not overtake POW. If the Twitter poll is representative of general opinion, then it sounds like, Tarun, you're arguing in the unpopular and contrarian position. We'll have a post-debate poll, and whoever tips the ratio more to their side wins the debate. Okay, let's get started with the opening statement. Kevin, please go ahead. Uh, in regards to uh, POS versus proof of work, obviously there is benefits uh, to proof of work. Uh, it has demonstrated a new technology that uh, uh, you know we didn't really know how to uh, make use of uh, for a very long time. Uh, prior to it, there was work in distributed systems for uh, decades, and we didn't really know how to deploy them in a in a really easy, uh, open way uh, in permissionless settings. And proof of work made it very simple. But proof of work to me uh, is a stepping stone, a, a really important stepping stone in sort of uh, uh, getting the notion of permissionless network out there into the wild and really making us think about deploying uh, financial value through permissionless networks. Uh, but ultimately, as far as a mechanism for sustainable long-term uh, security uh, and growth of, uh, of these types of networks, it does not seem like a uh, sustainable mechanism. It is um, obviously incredibly expensive. As, as uh, uh, built, uh, it uh, leaks value to a very, set of, uh, very small set of participants uh, with a lot of uh, compounding effects and growth uh, and economies of scale that really uh, make them outperform everybody else. Uh, so they're, they're centralizing systems. Um, and uh, all in all, the set of arguments that have been used over time to claim that proof of work is the only uh, mechanism by which true value is uh, is uh, uh, you know created based uh, for, for a you know cryptocurrency or a sovereign uh, currency rather I should say uh, is a flawed argument uh, based on any measure of what market theory really uh, uh, means uh, value comes from a general consensus uh, from uh, people that are willing to participate in a particular market not from the underlying, uh, 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 you know, energy consumption of that technology or of, the, or of that system underlying uh, instrument, rather. Uh, so that's that's my uh, starting position. Okay, great. Tarun, time for your opening statement. Go ahead. So while I agree that proof of stake has a really valuable place uh, in the ecosystem and in the world, uh, proof of stake and proof of work are dramatically divergent uh, as civil resistance mechanisms. And the main difference between proof of work and proof of stake is their functionality as as civil resistance mechanisms, which ensure that the same person can't sort of claim increasing rewards relative to the resources they contribute to the system. So while while on the surface we're usually able to liquidly convert capital to energy and backwards, it does seem like the security of proof of work and proof of stake are actually the same. However, during very adverse times, which are the times in which one really has to stress test a civil resistance mechanism, it becomes much harder to view these two as the same. The natural diffusion of energy resources on the planet versus the generically concentrated distribution of POS assets makes it hard to, to imagine how, how sort of a POS system can, can really recover from say, a really catastrophic event, like 99% of token holders lose their keys. Um, in other words, there's sort of a weird thing of, of 
basically how you have to restart these networks. Joining them kind of effortlessly and permissionlessly takes a lot more work and you have to have sort of a significantly more complicated uh, cryptographic setup. But outside of this sort of really doomsday scenario, the more pedestrian view is that financial attacks against proof of stake are far more effective uh, than one might think um, naively. And one of the reasons for this is that most proof of stake algorithms are usually analyzed under sort of a cryptographic threat model that is similar to the cryptographic threat model used for proof of work and other distributed systems. But this threat model sort of makes one secret assumption, which is that the capital staked in the system stays constant. And if there's a lot of volatility in the amount of capital flowing through these systems, you actually have very different behavior. Proof-of-work assets don't exactly have the same problem because they kind of need to also have hash power derivatives in order to have this sort of similar, similar property where capital or hash power, where security can kind of flow out of the system instantaneously. Given that there hasn't been much liquidity in these assets, it's hard to believe that proof-of-work security is really similar to proof-of-stake. The other thing is that the irreversible nature of burning energy versus the sort of inability to generate purely irreversible digital objects uh, makes it hard to believe that proof-of-stake uh, assets will really become dominant bedrock uh, stores of value. However, I do really think that proof-of-stake has a really good place as a financial asset for something being more akin to U.S. equities. Secure, and definitely secure, but not really secure in the face of capital flight. And in the current times where we're watching capital flight happen um, with kind of craziness that's going on in the repo market and uh, different things that are happening in terms of flight, flight to treasuries, we kind of are seeing the situations in which proof-of-stake security model is significantly worse than proof of work. Um, now, at the same time, since we haven't defined what it means for proof of stake to win or be better, um, I will throw out one thing, which, you know, a natural argument against sort of why proof of stake will not be subordinate, which is that U.S. equities are significantly larger in aggregate and market cap uh, than hard hard assets, so gold, um, you know, other metals, oil. So while this is true, um, the current financial system does still rely on the U.S. dollar as the final settlement numeraire. On the other hand, the crypto markets, if you study market microstructure quite carefully, really relies on Bitcoin and Tether, and everything else is at this point, a rounding error. Um, and so everyone eventually trades through those pairs. And the flight to safety that happens when a proof of stake token is attacked right now really still takes place via Bitcoin and Tether. And it's really hard to imagine that if there were sort of this, you know, a cryptocurrency took over the world and was mainly used all over the world. And if there were a sort of scare, kind of like the coronavirus scare, it would be kind of hard to imagine people actually sticking in, in a proof-of-stake 
Bitcoin when kind of asset prices are going down and capital is being reallocated. Uh, so that's sort of my my view on this is more that proof of stake presents a bunch of risks that make it not suitable as hard money, but they make it, it makes it much more suitable for financial instruments for lending and equity, um, which is still extremely valuable, of course. Okay, great. So let's proceed to round two, which is the body of the debate. Here, I'll be directing questions to each of you and feel free to respond to each other's opening statements. My first question is for Kevin. Paul Stork from the diehard POW camp says this, nothing is cheaper than POW because as an economic principle, cost of production will always catch up to revenues. So even if POS doesn't directly waste energy, the competition amongst validators will still drive up the cost, eventually approaching the block rewards. His argument is that if the market is efficient, then the cost of mining, the cost of validating will still match the revenue obtained. In this case, you might not be burning energy directly, but you'd still be consuming a high amount of cost. So do you have any thoughts on this? Um, certainly both proof-of-stake and proof-of-work are uh, civil deterrence mechanisms. Uh, and uh, naturally, they need to be costly. Uh, any uh, That's their whole point. Uh, a civil control mechanisms need to prevent uh, a, a set of participants to come into a permissionless system and overtake it and uh, double spend and uh, do all sorts of malicious things. Uh, the cost of uh, attacking a proof-of-stake system should be very high, uh, especially as the system uh, grows with its uh, active usage. Um, that's just a natural consequence. I mean, that's exactly what you would want to happen. Uh, so yes, I mean, I do agree that the uh, you know true cost of uh, of running a highly secure proof of stake system is uh, is very high. Uh, does stand. Uh, and you know it should be as high as the cost generally uh, in U.S. dollars as running a uh, proof of uh, work system. Uh, but the arguments on costs are uh, hiding a very important factor, uh, which is on how these costs are derived and where these costs are being distributed. Uh, the the security model here is uh, significantly different, uh, even though it aims to achieve the same thing. Um, proof of work leaks value uh, to a small set of participants uh, that uh, you know use economies of scale to grow larger and larger uh, using their hardware equipment. Um, the cost there is in uh, this massive investment in hardware, whereas the cost in the proof of stake is in is in capital. Uh, so yes, both very costly, but it seems like a very um, just not fully formed at least argument to say that uh, uh, they are both as inefficient. In fact, uh, quite the opposite. Uh, uh, proof of stake is probably one of the most uh, efficient mechanisms of, uh, of ensuring uh, security in a system because ultimately both proof of work and proof of stake uh, try to attach a cost value to it. It's just the proof of work does it through a very roundabout way of, of you know, first uh, bringing in hardware, uh, and so on, whereas uh, proof of stake directly ties it to um, to you know to capital, so it's it's much more efficient. It it removes any extraneous exogenous mechanisms of of uh, of uh, bringing in security, such as electricity costs uh, and uh, and mining hardware. Um, 
So it would really need to be a much more uh, formed argument uh, on on his side in order for me to really attach to it. Um, but uh, that's sort of the the very gist of, of the answer. Yeah. So I uh, I directionally actually agree with Kevin um, that it's actually really hard to correctly measure this sort of delta in production costs versus revenue costs because they they kind of break down into quite quite different components that are not quite interconvertible. And in a lot of ways, um, you know, Stork's argument does does take sort of a, a more heuristic approach to justifying this. There are more formal ways to to do this, which is that uh, you can kind of try to consider a portfolio that consists of a proof of work coin and a proof of stake coin. And then you can also consider a portfolio of other derivative securities that are trying to replicate them, um, as in having the same exact return profile and the same volatility profile. And you can basically, roughly speaking, show that uh, in order for, if if there are no hash power, uh, if there are hash power derivatives, the correct way to sort of replicate a proof of work portfolio with a proof of stake coin is to basically go long a staking coin and short a staking derivative, which will be equivalent to a proof of work coin plus a hash power derivative. And from 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 this type of replication argument, you can kind of use traditional portfolio theory to kind of estimate this Cosian tax, which is the delta between cost of production and cost of revenue. Um, and it's kind of really hard to argue directionally in my mind which one is actually bigger. Um, although I do do inherently think it's probably proof of work. However, the costs for proof of stake, I think, are significantly higher than people had assumed, I think, during the boom times in 2017. Um, part of the reason is like you end up running a lot more nodes than you expected. You end up being in a data center that usually has to have a very high bandwidth interconnect. You need to have DDoS prevention and sentries. You need to have key management for all of these new curves, which means you need a lot more more complicated HSMs. Um, you need kind of a lot more new technology that hasn't been proven in production yet. And these temporal effects will definitely cause some type of Cosian slippage and proof of stake in which the you will still have these concentration effects into certain professional groups. And we already see that. Um, I just don't think that the Cosian tax is quite as quite as large as the proof of work one, because the proof of work one does have this weird thing where the time scale in which you have to lock up capital for hardware is probably a lot longer, unless HSM prices start going through the roof. Sorry, are you able to clarify that concept that you mentioned, Cosian tax? Yes, sure. So so a Cosian tax, uh, traditionally, in sort of the, the Coast has this very famous paper on the theory of the firm, the idea is that why do firms exist? Why why can't everyone just be a contractor? What are the what are the sort of uh, benefits of forming groups and firms? And part of the reason is if we think of the network of uh, agents participating in a, an economic network, if they're in, interacting at a peer to peer level only, then they tr- they try to and they're maximizing their own local revenue, then they might charge someone who they need to work together with collaboratively the maximum price they can charge them. Whereas when you have a firm and you have a group of people who interact while charging each other no transaction taxes, the firm as a whole can grow faster than the sum of the individuals. And it's sort of a network effect-like thing. 
And so the Kosian tax is sort of the measure of the difference of I take N people and I put them into a firm and then measure the total output that they have versus taking N people as contractors, more or less, and measure their total uh, value accrued. And the, that sort of difference is roughly speaking this Kosian behavior. Now, the reason I, I mentioned that for the cost of production versus cost of revenue is there's a sense in which the that that the difference between those uh, goes to zero when there's a lot of competition um, and there's no kind of uh, impediment to starting a new firm um, that's maximizing value. So, roughly speaking, uh, you could kind of view the the historic argument in that from that lens if you're if you're taking kind of traditional economic theory. Okay, Kevin, you can respond to this or the other points that Tarun mentioned in the opening statement. Sure. Um, no, I absolutely agree uh, with uh, uh, Tarun here. Um, the thing is that uh, you know something that we need to do uh, as uh, as uh, the debate progresses, and I think I'm, I'm noticing this is that there is a multidimensional debate happening here with proof of work and versus proof of stake. Um, we're treating it as almost, uh, you know, apples to oranges comparison, uh, but it's actually a very uh, complicated uh, set of uh, technologies that interplay differently based on a specific implementation of each one of these. Uh, so it, it's, uh, it, you know, as, as we go forward, I will want to uh, tackle on uh, a particular functionality uh, or a particular property of uh, proof of stake or proof of work as it pertains to a particular implementation of each one of these, because it's, it's really complicated. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's very multidimensional here. Um, in regards to the points that uh, 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 Terran made in his opening remarks, so um, in reg- when we describe the two, uh, we let me take the approach of first sort of talking about them in the sense of uh, just uh, uh, raw sustainability, uh, the raw number, uh, or rather the overhead of uh, of running these systems. Um, in from that perspective, uh, you know how much electricity is being burned, how much uh, are we actually expanding, uh, uh, how much are we using to to secure the system? Um, it's it's kind of very hard to make the case that proof of work is in any way sustainable or uh, will be the technology that will win out in the long term. Uh, but I do see the point, uh, and in fact, uh, you know, we agreed off band at some point on our discussion that uh, indeed, uh, you know, proof of stake as has been deployed currently in the existing systems that at least I have seen um, has this uh, weird property of uh, quick capital flight. Uh, so, uh, you know, there could be some uh, black uh, swan event which could disrupt really the value of the of the of the system, causing a rapid uh, move out of it, uh, and therefore destabilizing the entire security guarantees and any applications built on top. Uh, not quite uh, the same can be said uh, for uh, for proof of work. However, it kind of can because proof of stake, uh, something that people fail to realize is that it can almost fully emulate uh, proof of work in every regard as far as properties go uh, and vice versa in a lot of ways. It's really just about the exogenous costs that are attributable to each one of these two uh, mechanisms. Ultimately, they can replicate each other's properties very closely. So 
while there can be capital flight in a, a proof of stake system, uh, people can, you know, for example, let's suppose that there is a, uh, a DeFi application and uh, that DeFi application uh, all of a sudden is a very attractive uh, uh, investment uh, for uh, for many stakeholders in the system, uh, causing validators to move from uh, actually securing the system to just locking their coins into the DeFi application. This could cause a very rapid uh, flight of security. Uh, the same can be said for proof of work. Uh, of course, you know, it would be the case that uh, everybody in a proof of work system is all of a sudden uh, turning off their machines. The hash power drops uh, radically, uh, but it's effectively the same property. You have uh, massive uh, uh, capital flight, even though in this case it's hardware flight, not really capital. Um, and that hardware flight does, in fact, uh, reduce the, the security system pretty drastically. The point uh, that I will concede to Terence's um, uh, advantage is that it's uh, uh, it's a more coordinated type uh, of, of event in proof of work, or rather maybe more of a even rarer black swan in that you would need for, let's say, Bitcoin uh, to uh, have global consensus on pulling the plug, uh, uh, you know, worldwide, everybody's turning off their machines in order for such a, uh, an event to happen. Whereas we could never really predict, um, you know, and we have kind of actually seen this happening. Um, we, in, in proof of stake, this can happen pretty Easily, we can see it happening. It's it's much easier to believe that uh, such an event can happen because you know we just suddenly move to a uh, a really highly attractive uh, DeFi application. Um, but ultimately, you know, as I said in the beginning, the two systems can actually emulate each other nearly perfectly. I don't really have a universal composability theory of proof of work and proof of stake, showing that both of them uh, can uh, can emulate each other. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can make capital flight uh, harder, uh, I would say, on, uh, on proof of stake by, uh, you know, forcing that proof of stake uh, or rather staked coins in a proof of stake system uh, are locked for very long periods of time in the same way that it would require somebody to buy a lot of hardware, come into the system, and uh, then if they want to leave, sell all that hardware back onto the open market that same sort of overhead can be emulated pretty closely in a proof of stake system. Um, so uh, from a security perspective, uh, and I'm not even talking about the other arguments that people have erroneously attributed to proof of work in regards to its uh, value uh, attribution, um, uh, in regards to just the security, that particular concern does not necessarily seem like something uh, that uh, uh, cannot be fixed. Although to concede, it has been uh, overlooked wildly, and I think Tarun has done a fantastic job at uh, precisely uh, identifying uh, uh, this risk with current uh, proof stake systems and how maybe easy it is to uh, uh, to observe capital flight. Okay, so Tarun, would you like to respond? Because I actually have a few points myself too, but you should go first if you have immediate thoughts. For sure. Um... Yeah, thanks. I I think the the main difference is really the the time scale difference. So if we think back to the history of proof of stake, I guess the first real uh, mention of it was uh, that that I could find. I'm I'm sure there's probably some other place where this uh, happened earlier. It was a 2012 Bitcoin Talk post um, where 
you know, someone did the thought experiment of what if I was doing proof of work mining, but I could every for every block reward I, I got, instead of having to like sell the block reward, buy hardware, put the hardware online, increase my relative hash power. What if I could just reinvest it instantly, like virtually, like the network was able to take my block reward and I say, hey, this block reward I just earned actually just make that increase the probability of me winning the next reward. Um, that experiment of like doing this continuous reinvestment, this instantaneous reinvestment, changes the time scales in proof of stake such that the the risks are always dependent on the fact that you have this like constant reinvesting property, and you can prevent it by adding lockups and adding you know other other forms of of of, of mechanism for do, for doing things like that. But that's really that makes the network very hard to bootstrap, and it's actually oftentimes quite capital inefficient for participants, um, especially if they need to you know pay costs in dollars for for validation hardware and uh, you know DDoS prevention, etc. And HSMs and updating HSMs, uh, HSM meaning hardware security modules. So that's the thing that you can use to store your keys. It usually will evaluate say certain elliptic curves it will in the case of like a zk proof it will evaluate a pairing etc um they you know provided that those costs are still denominated in another currency that's your numeraire it's very very hard to imagine people viewing kind of the capital efficiency of proof of stake as being optimal now now can it be fixed i i don't doubt that it can get better i just am not I just would never, I wouldn't be willing to wager uh, really much more than a 50-50 bet on whether it can come within, you know, 20% of proof of work as a capital efficiency, from a capital efficiency standpoint. Sorry, but isn't that capital inefficiency sort of mirroring between POW and POS in the sense that if you were to purchase a mining machine, you're also sort of tying in your capital and then there's severe friction in you selling that machine to reclaim your capital. So doesn't that sort of mirror the long capital lockup characteristic that Kevin posited in POS? Yeah, there is there is definitely a sense in which uh, that's true. Although um, there's, there's a more clear uh, methodology for amortizing the cost of um, your OPEX and CAPEX in mining versus the fact that in proof of stake right now, it seems like OPEX is not zero for sure. It's definitely very far from zero. Otherwise, people could validate on their cell phone. Um, but it's not uh, you know, greater than 50%. Um, that trade-off for OPEX and CAPEX, at least in proof of work, because of how liquid the energy derivatives market is, uh, you know, it's one of the most liquid markets in the world outside of the rates markets, uh, the energy derivatives markets help you hedge and amortize your 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 opex significantly better than you can in proof of stake right now, because there's just not that whole ecosystem of hedging products. And so that's why I'm saying, you know, if I were to start being a validator today, that my capital efficiency is actually quite limited by the the set of financial products that I can use to kind of achieve sort of what I want to be an optimum outcome. Uh, whereas in proof of work, that's not true because everything's structured around these energy, energy financial products, which are extremely, extremely liquid compared to anything in crypto. Okay. Okay. 
All right, so let's move on to the next question. It's for Tarun. So one way for Bitcoiners to combat the whole energy wasting accusation is pointing out the fact that much of the energy comes from energy sources that are excessive or hard to store. Examples are solar, wind, hydro. This type of green energy for mining analogy for staking is that if an ETH hodler wants to hold ETH regardless, then they're not taking up additional capital resources. Do you think this view is legitimate? Yeah, I think uh, I think there's one kind of uh, potential difference in, in hodling in, in proof of stake networks, which is and is the moment that you have raw staking derivatives, the hodled ETH is actually now in the insurance fund for the staking derivative. So what does this mean? So if we unpack this a little bit, the staking derivative is sort of letting you borrow kind of like a maker CDP against your staked tokens, some fraction, let's say it's 30%. So you, so you have 100 stake tokens, you can borrow 30 of the stake tokens, and it mints a synthetic that's supposed to represent that. If you get slashed for 30 stake tokens, then your, your collaterals reclaimed by the network. But the network is socializing the loss, and the ETH hodler, in that case, is actually potentially, is sort of implicitly providing the insurance fund for that. Now, I'm not saying that it's necessarily good or bad. I'm not taking a strong stance on whether it's good or bad to, to socialize those losses to holders in, in, in those ways. Um, but I am saying that it is, it is something that you kind of have to consider when you when you say, oh, there is a, uh, you're not really taking up capital resources. You are providing this kind of reinsurance to the rest of the network, and you might not be correctly assessing that you're doing that. In a risk neutral world, you are taking no capital resources, but in a somewhat risk averse world, you actually are taking up quite quite a bit of capital resources under certain types of black swan events. Um, and the other thing that's kind of weird about the, the ETH hodler hodling ETH regardless is at least, you know, for um, a lot of the proof of stake networks that are going to launch, they have emission schedules. So block reward and transaction fee redistribution schedules that are dependent on the total staked quantity. And so by being an ETH hodler who is not staked, you know, you are getting burned by inflation, but you're actually getting burned by inflation significantly less if everyone else is staking. So if a lot of other people are staking, let's say, let's say, let's pretend the curve is at 10%. Um, the block reward is 10 ETH, 10% uh, of ETH, outstanding ETH staked. The block reward is 10%. And when it's 90% staked, the block reward is 1%. Now, there are very few people who are traders who would not take a liquidity premium, especially in cryptocurrency, of 1%, right? And so you're implicitly actually, as an ETH hodler, doing better than the stakers at really high stake rates. Now, you might argue that's good, or you might argue that's bad, but that, that these are the types of risks that you're, you're, you're implicitly taking. Um, and I, I think like, you know, as a, as a holder of these things, you have to strongly assess um, you know how you feel about those, and when whether you you actually have the risk tolerance that you are considering under certain types of uh, cash units. So I don't think it's really legitimate to say you're not taking up capital resources, as much as it's saying you've just bought a bunch of bought and sold a bunch of puts on future capital 
prices and future behavior. And you just, you know, right now it's a risk neutral portfolio. So it averages out to zero, but it's very unclear if that is sustained. Okay, great. Well, Kevin, do you want to respond to that? If not, I'm happy to move on to the next question. No, no, certainly. Absolutely. That's, uh, I think, a straightforward one. Um, totally agreed uh, on the characterization of, uh, of the, the current, effectively, Ethereum ecosystem right now. Uh, but as I said, at some point, that this is a multidimensional uh, uh, you know, argument, and it needs to be framed in the context of the particular system that is implementing a, a proof-of-stake symbol control mechanism. So, uh, what uh, uh, what Tarun is mentioning uh, as effectively these being uh, uh, put options uh, for future cash flows, uh, absolutely right. Um, but this can be easily remedied. Uh, obviously, you can imagine, for example, a proof stake system where uh, there is a, sort of a two coin dynamics. Uh, there is uh, the, the same coin which has a uh, uh, you know a behavior that makes it look more like hardware, which has a onboarding period, uh, a deloading period, uh, being sort of "Quote unquote," sold on the open markets that in basically precisely mirrors what uh, uh, what uh, you know uh, uh, regular mining hardware would look like, and uh, and the ability for these tokens to move back and forth from one to another uh, based on some bonding and unbonding period. Um, so uh, I, I see this. You no, know, I, I don't have this worked out mathematically fully, uh, and this would be a really interesting uh, uh, way to go forwards. Uh, but this is a. Uh, simply a failure of current implementations, not necessarily a fundamental failure. Uh, but uh, as Arun has done a fantastic job at identifying this um, uh, current failure, and in fact, uh, pretty surprised that people weren't seeing this uh, uh, sort of from the very beginning. Uh, but uh, it, it's a it's a really it's a really great um, identification of the problem. Uh, but I, I see pretty straightforward remedies to it and make it really emulate the same exact way that uh, that uh, you would operate with your capital uh, if you were to go down the, uh, the mining route. Okay, great. My next question is for Kevin again. POS will result in lockup of huge amount of capital to secure the chain. This capital is inaccessible to the broader economy and therefore cannot be used to facilitate technological progress and economic growth. So this is another point raised by Paul Stork in one of his articles in favor of POW. So your thoughts on this? Effectively, what he's saying is that there is a portion of the capital broader pool that is uh, being used to secure the network, and the rest uh, is uh, is out there uh, float, you know, floating in the network. Well, like these things are divisible, infinitesimally divisible. Um, it's not like we have these uh, coins that you know there is a fixed supply of them. Or whatever it may be, and they're not divisible. Therefore, these things are uh, never, you know, we're fighting over just a very small, finite set of tokens, and therefore removing some of them from circulation by staking them causes uh, huge panic on the market. Uh, very, I don't think we've seen this empirically um, uh, anywhere, both on crypto and non-crypto markets. This is just not the case. Um, in non-crypto markets, maybe there might have been some instances because these things are not infinitesimally divisible. Uh, but in crypto markets, effectively, that's the case. Uh, these systems, uh, it's, it's just very hard to, to make the case for, for what Paul is saying. Just to clarify on that point, though, I think basically if you were to compare two systems, a POW one and a POS one, suppose they have the same market cap and same level of security, quote unquote. I don't know exactly how to quantify that, but 
let's say in broad strokes, they have similar amount of security. It just seems that the amount of capital that goes into funding the POW system, the OPEX is the ongoing electricity burning and the CAPEX is the mining equipment. And then on the other hand, the OPEX, I suppose, is the opportunity cost of the capital lockup. But the CAPEX is substantially all the capital that the POS holders are willing to put in for staking, right? So does it make sense to say that the budget used to be securing the system from a CAPEX perspective is much larger than the former? And if so, then I think that's where Paul's argument sort of kicks in. And that just says you're spending way more capital to provide the same level of security. I'm not saying that's a valid point, but I'm just clarifying his stance. And I was hoping to maybe hear your opinion on whether this stance is legitimate. Um, absolutely. So, uh, as right, exactly as you said, um, it's just the problem f- sort of basing uh, you know, that argument on the, the first set of assumptions seems really difficult to make here. Uh, we haven't seen this empirically. Uh, it seems really hard to make the case. Um, and conversely, if we're going down this route, uh, Paul is failing to mention the fact that, you know, all the new capital uh, that is being generated, uh, or rather all the new coins that are being minted, are effectively being paid immediately out to the same people that are securing the system, which can, of course, take them out of circulation and do whatever they want with these tokens. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, a lot of the arguments here seems, by the way, also the argument that I'm currently making is not necessarily strong. It's just an assumption. Uh, so it seems like both sides uh, are, are really starting with assumptions and not clear based empirical evidence. Turin, would you like to follow up on this? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, the CapEx, OpEx version of the world is the correct way to frame this question. And one of the reasons I'm, you know, I'm maybe not, I, while I think proof of stake will work and will be useful, I, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not bullish on it being having the same capital efficiency strictly because the proof of work OpEx market is very closely tied, again, to the energy derivatives market. And in some sense, uh, the OPEX is a lot, can like track realistic demand and energy usage much more closely. Um, I think then currently the OPEX in proof of stake can. And part of the reason for that is, is, you know, as you pointed out, one component of OPEX in proof of stake is opportunity cost, lost yield from an external source, or, or if you're, you know, risk seeking, maybe a higher risk thing if you're risk averting than like a lower risk thing. Um, but there's another component of OPEX that I think is more, it was not really expected when people were first building these systems, which ends up being the kind of bandwidth requirements, having to run nodes in, in quite good data centers, right? Like people, a lot of validators, professional validators are running in, in you know, Equinix databases, Equinix data centers, which is like, that's where Nisey and, and, you know, the SIBO keep half of their data centers. Um, and so it's like there, there's a sense in which there's a lot more security that you need at the network level uh, right now, which, again, could ameliorate over time. Um, combined with this idea, and, and so that causes a bunch of OPEX, at least right now, that's not just related to the opportunity cost of, of capital. Um, combined with the fact that there's just not a really good way to hedge other than sort of 
providing some kind of loans against your staked quantity, but that has a ton of security effects. And so that's why even though you've seen all these validators make a lot of um, proclamations about wanting to have staking derivatives and wanting to have them, you know, be handled by the protocol so that the consensus mechanism could like at least kind of stem capital flight. These are still very early ideas versus the OPEX management in, in, in the energy market being extremely, extremely uh, liquid and optimized. Um, I, I'm not saying that this can't change. I'm just saying that you're, you, you have to reinvent a lot of existing finance that I would say that people in the cryptocurrency space just don't totally have, which in some ways is good. You're starting from a, a new shoe. But in other ways, it's bad. You're going to redo the same mistakes as as Matt Levine always says. So, uh, I, I I do agree that maybe in the sort of really long time limit, past my lifetime, this may actually work out. But for the foreseeable future, it just seems really hard to imagine the capital efficiency on the uh, for proof of stake improving, like having a Moore's law. Let's uh, shift gears a little bit. My next question for Tarun is, one advantage of POS over POW is the punishment mechanism. In the former system, the offender's stake can be confiscated through slashing and so forth, whereas in the latter system, the offender just wastes the power being generated for that one block. So it just seems that there is a lot more flexibility when it comes to the POS design in terms of keeping the stakeholders in line. Your thoughts on this? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, and and I think this is probably the place where where Kevin and I will have some some more disagreements on, which is good for a debate. Um, but I I uh, I think I think that uh, there's a really huge advantage to having irreversible stochastic processes, this pseudo Markov sampling method of proof of work, driving your consensus mechanism versus potentially reversible uh, methods um, because that's really what makes financial attacks a lot harder. And so part of the reason that I think proof of stake has such a way more interesting and rich design space is because it does kind of have these, these financial, the financial surface area of like, you know, you're, something that's supposed to be a store of value now has the financial surface area of, you know, a CDS on a sovereign nation. Um, and so that has a lot more complexity and like the end user has to know how to, how to deal with that. And so that, that also happens during slashing and, and with confiscated sort of collateral. Um, but there's also a, a particularly weird incentive uh, that is, is weird for proof of stake that doesn't exist for proof of work, which is that slashing can be sort of insured. So again, I, I, I get back to, to staking derivatives. If, you, if your network has staking derivatives, and you think you're about to get slashed, you should be taking out a loan against your stake quantity, the largest loan you can, and then just defaulting, getting slashed until it defaults, but you've already sold it for some stable coin, and now the network has to eat your loss. And while you think this might not happen, um, you know, Compound and Maker, which are our most, which is the closest we have to battle-tested production systems of this form, um, basically already have run into this where there are some of the less liquid markets have had people borrow stable coins against um, more or less shit coins and they basically default on their loan and no liquidator 
wants to actually even buy the collateral and, and kind of make the contract solvent. Staking derivatives uh, to cover staking derivatives interactions with slashing will have a similar kind of like moral hazard. And I think burning energy can't be insured, accidentally burning energy can't be insured in, uh, as cleanly as, as this. And so, you know, the best you can do there is to try to hedge, you know, the aggregate loss that you have um, to, to smooth your income out or to join a pool. Whereas in, in, in proof of stake land, it's a little more like, oh, well, I could theoretically insure my slash rate and then just default on the network. Um, now, I think when when you don't have slashing, as, as Kevin, I'm sure will have a lot to say about, um, you, you, you do avoid this problem, but you do still have like complicated long-term payoff amortization that like I, it's just really hard to imagine replicating proof of work. Now, this is why I say, I think proof of stake is a great financial instrument platform. Is it money? Absolutely not. Is it a real store of value that should be great for collateral? No, not really. Like there's just the surface area makes it so much more prone to these kind of these kind of like weird insurance style attacks. And and the space of the the I, I would I would posit that the space of derivative securities on proof of work assets is actually finite dimensional and quite small, whereas the space of derivative securities on proof of stake assets is infinite dimensional, which is why they are good for programmability, but also why they're kind of second tier. They're the mezzanine debt to say, you know, the, the top tier debt. Um, and, you know, I, I, I wrote a little note when I saw, saw, saw kind of heard this question that was, uh, you know, it's maybe a little bit of a, a wonky note, but, you know, reversible computers, which have been talked about uh, since the 1960s, which are, are you know, super cool, right? They use really crazy physics to generate kind of totally reversible computations. And there's reasons that reversible computations are more efficient, theoretically. Uh, but in practice, the computer we're using right now, the computer you're using right now, uses irreversible thermodynamics and burns a lot of energy. Um, and that's just because they're just easier to productize and the UX ends up being easier. Um, and you don't have to think as much. Reversible computers have kind of the same surface area problem. Um, so uh, that's sort of that's sort of my muddled set of thoughts. Fantastic. So Tarun's opening statement was quite a bit longer. And I just wanted to make sure that there were points in there that Kevin had a chance to respond to. Tarun, maybe... If you feel there are certain concepts or arguments that have not been fully hashed out through this discussion, feel free to bring them up. Maybe summarize them for our benefit, because to be honest, I think your arguments are quite dense. Yeah, I think I think again, a lot of a lot of the 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 points that Kevin has made have really covered things. I think the 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 main thing that especially that we've seen in production lately is the 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 increased usage of flash loans in, in the DeFi space. And flash loans are really kind of this magnificent application of, of cryptocurrencies and blockchains that just did not fundamentally exist in the normal markets and does not really have an analog. Um, there really is no way of doing it without trusted without trustless computation. Um, and so, I mean, I think they're, they're fantastic from this, this point of view. They've expanded our notion of knowledge. They've also changed the necessary threat model for capital-based systems 
like DeFi and proof of stake, we're the capital of digital, a digital asset. Um, and so I think one thing that, you know, especially as proof of stake grows that people will have to, to think about is that the threat model is not the 50% or 33% attack anymore. It's that someone can instantaneously get our 99% of the network for a tiny amount of time. And so in proof of work, it's just impossible to imagine doing that unless you have hash power derivatives that are liquid. And we've just seen the market for those be quite poor. The empirical evidence is that people don't really want them. They would rather hedge directly in Bitcoin or hedge in Tether. Um, so I, I think that uh, I think that, that that this this kind of uh, we're kind of in this amazing amazing race of how can I destroy these networks as fast as possible in proof of stake land um, because the surface area is gigantic, and I think trying to figure out you know I would love to know where Kevin thinks what the time scale he thinks that kind of we will have a manageable understanding of the surface area and, and sort of when it can approximate the kind of threat model of proof of work. Kevin, feel free to respond. You know, uh, Taron is obviously uh, one of the people I respect most in the space, but I think he's also overcomplicating things. It's actually pretty straightforward. Uh, the argument that he's making is that um, effectively proof of work has exogenous threat model to the capital that is being used and programmed inside the uh, blockchain platform. Very simple. There is a set of, uh, of monies. Uh, these are programmable. Uh, they can be used for various different functions. Proof of work says, I am going to bring in security without really touching the internal component money itself. Proof of stake says, look, I can use the money that is currently in this blockchain to itself encode security and make it hard to attack, et cetera, et cetera. So proof of stake is a much larger set of, uh, it's a larger family of, uh, of protocols, which one of those could be effectively the simulation of the function underlying uh, the proof of work mechanism. You can in fact fully emulate proof of work using a proof of stake system. This is something that I think Tarun is missing entirely. Um, which is uh, then uh, the secretary here is that, um, uh, yes, you in the current designs, and I think I've mentioned this before in very straightforward terms, uh, the current design of proof of stake systems is that it intertwines uh, 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 the security of the system with the actual ca uh, capital that is being used for various other functions a little bit too much. But that can be easily mitigated or reduced down um, to basically nine, uh, uh, the, the five nines of error uh, 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 probability uh, by increasing uh, bonding times and by making maybe even something like a two-coin system where there is a coin that is being used, uh, or, or rather part of the uh, ecosystem coins are specifically being used uh, in this new sort of uh, uh, ionic format uh, you know, that uh, do not really interfere with the rest of the system and can transition or uh, metastasize into something different, uh, or rather the other capital that is being used in the system uh, through some process that takes some period of time that exactly emulates proof of work. Uh, so the entire set of arguments here on, you know, slashing uh, risks, uh, all these things really boil down to the fact, to the following fact, really boil down very simply. Current proof-of-stake designs intertwine the capital that is being used for all sorts of non-security-based systems with the capital that is being used uh, for the security of the system. In fact, it happens to be that in current proof-of-stake designs, 
these two forms of capital are the same, the one and the same. But these, there's no reason for this to be the case, right? It's just, it was the simple way to construct proof of stake systems. We went with it. And now we're discovering that as, you know, I think uh, Tarun is pioneering, this design is probably not the right approach. And we need a way to transition between these two very separate classes of, of coins. Yet there is no reason why we, we cannot assign value and security with the, with the very coins that we're programming. So we can use those coins, that programmability uh, that the coins uh, provide you with um, and tie it to, to the security of the system. Proof of work is simply a, a, you know, a, a first attempt uh, at, uh, at uh, br- rather mapping hardware, uh, extraneous hardware, uh, to uh, the security system and, and, and security through that way. But all of the things with capital flight, destabilization, black swans that apply to proof of stake can easily apply to proof of work in the same exact way. So I don't particularly see a difference in the two. Um, but I will concede that current proof of stake designs uh, could be done much better. Okay, great. And by the way, speaking of slashing, my understanding is Ava does not have slashing. Is that correct, Kevin? And what's the thinking behind that? Oh, it's very simple. It's because we don't. <laughs> we want to isolate the the the, the capital that is being used for staking uh, from the the rest of the uh, the network as much as possible. Staking seems to introduce deeper uh, uh, a deeper sort of uh, uh, inter interlock between the two because you're effectively saying that this is the same capital uh, and you're going to slash this capital. Uh, so you better not do it. Uh, we're taking more of the uh, proof of work type simulation approach. Uh, where uh, there isn't quite a two-token uh, system in AVA, but there is one type of token which is pretty aggressively different from the other set of tokens, uh, which are used for all kinds of uh, you know capital uh, application, capital-intensive applications like DeFi applications. Uh, so uh, we can't really intertwine the two. And uh, when you don't intertwine the two, then slashing seems just like an exo- rather uh, uh, another thing that you can get rid of. And uh, and that's great because it's a, it's a, something that introduces complexity and you really don't want to go down that route. Okay, got it, got it. Actually, one more question for Turun before we move on to audience questions. So Arthur at Tezos and Gun at Ava asserted that in POW, transaction fees accrue to the hash power of the network with no corresponding reduction in inflation. On the other hand, in POS, fees accrue to stakers, which effectively lowers real inflation. So the idea here is that POS does a better job of value preservation, whereas the POW miners seem to have no skin in the game. So your thoughts on this? I mean, uh, maybe maybe the more empirical view on this is that we just haven't had real transaction demand to like transaction demand where the tr- transaction demand was dominating the block reward subsidy uh, to actually know. Uh, whether this would be true or false. Um, I think, I, I definitely think it, it, the the naive version of that is very true. Um, the only thing I would say that I would add that might, I would disagree with on that is that the potential for validating pools to actually take the fees, uh, like to appropriate a higher percentage of the fees than of the block reward subsidy, I think is quite high. Um, in the same way that right now people are kind of suggesting that miners should be front running all the flash loan transactions that are profitable enough if they could like figure out how to do it quick enough. Um, I tend to think that the fact that we're coming to a world where the, at least it seems right now, 
where there are mainly professional, some set of professional validation services who actually manage the mempools and who actually are running the nodes. Um, I just suspect that they will find a way to front run transactions that have high value at when they're, when they exist, which may make their kind of like skin in the game a little bit weird because they're sort of custodians who are front running their own delegates and users of the system. But this is a very kind of like nuanced thing that, like I said, we haven't seen real transaction volume on any of these networks include like Bitcoin is all, you know, if you if you look at the transaction fees, there really are this like mean reverting process, except around big price moves, like certain types of big price moves. Other than that, it's like that. It looks almost like noise. There's very there's very little information content in the fees for for, I think, making an empirical version of this statement come true. Okay, great. So let's move on to the last round questions from audience members from Twitter. So these questions are for both and feel free to answer in whichever order you prefer. So the first question, this is more of a comment, but I'd love to get your reaction to it. So this is from somebody named Last Token. POS is great for consortium or oligarchy-ish situation. POW is fit for extreme decentralization and egalitarian situation. Agree? Disagree? Merits? I mean, I, I definitely... I definitely agree with the, that sentiment. Uh, that's why I said I think proof of stake is really great at being U.S. equities, which is an oligarchy. Let's let, let's establish that that is a consortium. It's it's a somewhat big consortium. There are a bunch of exchanges. Reg NMS from the SEC kind of forces them to work cooperatively to some extent. They don't they don't destroy the try to completely destroy each other. Um, but I still just don't know if I can. I'm still just not convinced that it it is equivalent to money um, or like, like kind of this extreme decentralization of, of I, I want to convince someone who like doesn't know, understand what an option price is that like they should accept this thing as a, as a payment. Um, now I'm not saying that any of the current POW coins are, are obviously that or, or not that either. I just, it's just harder for me to imagine going to my grandmom and, and being like, okay, so here's the vol surface you got of this thing you're buying. And like, you're buying at this point and like, it might go to this point, but it probably won't. Like, it just seems, you know, maybe there will be a way at some point where we really know the security of these things, understand the security in such a way that the UX is, feels the same. But I, I do think that like, you will end up having sophisticated groups of participants being very good at proof of stake. And proof of work is kind of good for unsophisticated participants. You don't need to be that intelligent to figure out how to do it correctly. Right now, at least. That's that's what I'd say. Kevin, anything to add? Yeah, no, definitely disagreed <laughs> on those fronts. Uh, the, uh, in fact, quite the opposite on, on every front. Uh, proof of work is probably a, a system which, because it has... Uh, separated the capital from the security. Uh, the people that are providing the security uh, don't necessarily care about the capital uh, that's inside the, the system. Uh, they simply get these rewards, they can dump it on the open market, and they can pull the plug at any time. Uh, that's A. Two, it is a highly centralizing system. It incentivizes for uh, cooperation and centralization into large pools. Uh, and objectively speaking, the Empirical results demonstrate exactly this. Uh, 
um, and uh, C, uh, as I think I've mentioned many times, uh, is that the proof-of-stake system uh, can just emulate or rather can, because it's, it's so programmable, uh, because the, the security itself comes from the from a programmable process, uh, then uh, and, and right, I mean like a yeah, uh, code wise can be encoded in any way you want. Uh, then um, you can really uh, emulate all the processes of proof of work directly in a proof of stake system. Of course, I will concede that proof of stake systems uh, that have been deployed to date are pretty centralized. Uh, they are basically running on a few validator services. Um, but you know that could be mostly because of uh, the uh, um, sort of immaturity of the proof of stake deployments. Uh, they are uh, really being deployed on just a few uh, highly trusted, um, uh, effectively validators and service providers, and that kind of makes sense as the ecosystem evolves, evolves further. Um, I would suspect that uh, the the offerings would increase, um, but we'll see. It's very possible that we'll maybe centralize even further on the proof of stake offerings. Uh, so that's definitely a concern. We would want to see people uh, deploy wildly um, uh, across uh, across jurisdictions and really uh, across the world. But uh, you know, the argument here that uh, uh, that this isn't money, it's just simply you know, there's there's no argument for it. Uh, this process wise, taking a look at this at this functional process, both on the proof of work side and on the proof of stake side, um, it's very clear to me that uh, the latter can fully replicate the former. Uh, so whatever the latter is can be made possible in a proper design uh, proof stake system. Uh, so I, I actually have one, maybe uh, two two comments to that. So so one is um, you know if you ask people to put their money where their mouth is, my I, I believe in the that proof of stake systems some of them will will definitely survive. But I own zero proof of stake coins. The only thing I own is Equinix stock, and I own a lot of Equinix stock, mainly because I think the data center providers are going to going to benefit quite quite a bit more than the in some ways potentially more than the coin themselves as a from a risk adjusted standpoint. The second thing is, I do agree that technically proof of stake networks can emulate proof of work, but my question is really more around the complexity of it, like you know from a 5 million mile uh, version of it, can proof of stake emulate proof of work in polynomial time? And so that's actually, that question itself, given all of these, as we keep finding all of these new risk adjustments and new things that we need to set, uh, adjust for, it's not actually totally clear that the computational complexity of proof of stake emulating proof of work is actually uh, sufficiently small that we can we can... Uh, emulate it with a perfect approximation ratio, like approximation ratio of capital efficiency of one relative to capital efficiency of the other. Um, if, if that's true, if that turns out to be true, and it's not even just that it's poly time versus non-poly time, but it's actually, you know, very small program can emulate everything and provide exactly the same securities, then I will definitely concede that point. But I have yet to see evidence. In fact, all I see, the evidence I see as these systems go live is that the the surface area of things you need to emulate proof of work exactly uh, in terms of the capital and OPEX costs is increasing. And it, it doesn't, it seems to be growing at a rate that doesn't suggest to me that the emulator program, so to speak, in the proof of stake land will actually be concise, small, succinct, whatever. Um, 
granted, granted, potentially in the world where people are only posting, you know, ZK proofs to the layer one, then maybe that doesn't matter because obviously we can emulate NP programs with, with any of these prover systems. But it is something to think about in, in terms of evaluating the efficiency of these things. It's You can replicate the proof-of-work model, but is it efficient to do it? And then that that is the part that has, I, I strongly, I do not think there is quantitative or empirical evidence for. So, yes. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you for the suggestion on the Equinix. I will definitely look at that. Always looking for a new <laughs> source of investment. Uh, th that's a great point. Um, uh, second, uh, no, absolutely. Uh, I don't think anybody has uh, done a full-on complexity theory study uh, on the reduction of uh, uh, whatever the class of algorithms that prove of work uh, uh, encodes uh, and how they can be translated into a uh, or rather, yeah, if, if proof of work encodes only a super exponential set of algorithms uh, and we can't really compute them in any polynomial time uh, on, on our machines, uh, then uh, that, that could be something to consider. But um, uh, it's really not the case. I, I see no reason that that wouldn't be the case, uh, especially because uh, let me propose to you a design that it's not perfect, uh, but it probably is, you know, generally in the right direction. Uh, proof of work, um, really what this process looks like is this pool of capital is just being generated out of thin air and that is being injected into the, the, the global ecosystem. And in fact, you can uh, decouple proof in, in Bitcoin, you can decouple uh, mining from validation entirely. You can imagine a proof of work uh, a variant of Bitcoin uh, where uh, there is one chain which is generating uh, nothing but just new coins, is not validating any transactions. And then these new coins are simply being airdropped into this proof of stake system. Uh, and those people then are, are you know, managing the, the validation of, of, uh, of the system. Um, uh, so you can imagine you going one step further where you make a proof uh, stake system where there is one network which generates out of thin air coins using proof of stake and then transitions them into the second network. Um, it uh, These are two fragmented networks such that if the first network ever uh, capitulates and there is no coins being generated, then it does not prove any security issues, at least very, you know, obviously, at least to me right now, uh, as I'm sort of uh, modeling my thoughts, um, to the second uh, uh, system. Uh, and uh, uh, the second system can continue operating even if the first one uh, disappears, which effectively, uh, you know, looks more like something of uh, the entire Bitcoin network sort of going offline, uh, you know, rather mining going offline and, you know, the plug being pulled, yet the uh, the coins sort of still existing um, under the ownership of, of a group of individuals that are running a proof of stake system. Uh, so, um, you know, this is very muddled, um, unclear, uh, uh, fully spec design, but uh, uh, this seems to go in the right direction and it seems to mostly emulate what exactly Bitcoin is doing. Uh, so I don't see this uh, with a few kink work, uh, kinks worked out. I don't see why this couldn't work. Uh, and I think the argument here is that, oh, it seems complex, therefore we shouldn't try it. Uh, that's not a really good argument. I mean, ultimately, this is money, this thing. Uh, uh, and that's, by the way, one of the most uh, uh, awesome uh, discussions that I would love to have, which is in regards to really what is money. Um, and I've heard all kinds of arguments coming from all sides. Um, you know, proof of work people say that, you know, Bitcoin is valuable because there was energy expenditure that had to be uh, put into it. Therefore, 
uh, you know, sort of the floor of Bitcoin necessarily must be the energy expenditure that went to it. Um, except that, you know, very obviously this is not the case because market theory, which is what really dominates uh, uh, dominates us nowadays, uh, is that, you know, the value of something is nothing except for what the market is willing to pay for it. Uh, so it does not matter what energy expenditure for Bitcoin is. Uh, it all, every, every single asset is really only as valuable as somebody else is willing to pay for it. Uh, so that's that's really all that it boils down to. So all those arguments on whether even Bitcoin is valuable kind of fall apart. So doesn't matter how much energy expenditure has been put into the system. If miners decide to dump everything and crash the system and everybody flights out of Bitcoin, that system is now entirely valueless and there is absolutely nothing that backs this up. Uh, this is a almost existential and highly... Uh, cognitive dissonance inducing statement because people are like, whoa, no, this thing is decentralized. It can never go down. Uh, but this is in fact exactly the case. If people lose faith in this, this is done for. There is no reviving Bitcoin back. Um, so it's really ultimately down to what people believe uh, You know, the, 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 the value of the system is. Uh, that's really what makes this valuable. Uh, that's what, uh, and then what kind of uses can, can you know, that value be used for? Uh, in Bitcoin, it's pretty limited. In in Ethereum, it's it's much more uh, broad, um, which is great. Uh, but ultimately, it's really about what, what the market decides this can be used for, uh, and that that's really what makes it money, not some exogenous thermodynamic process that generates some uh, some new uh, things out of thin air. Okay, so I think your last point about Bitcoin and proof of work system seems to basically defeats the argument that burning of energy does not necessarily make something valuable. Okay, so, but how does that argument apply to POS's superiority or benefit over POW? Does that argument not apply to POS coins simultaneously? 100% it does. Uh, same exact argument. There is uh, the security of, uh, uh, of uh, a proof-of-stake system is really uh, the best calculation you can make is at that time what the value of those coins is um, because the market set the value of those coins. There isn't really any other inherent uh, security to it. It's just the market decides is what people believe this to be uh, valued at. Uh, so no, no, the proof of stake is absolutely not uh, immune to those arguments. Okay, okay. Would you like to respond to that, by the way, Tarun? Maybe not necessarily the last point, but any other points you mentioned? Yeah, um... Actually, I mean, I love the last point, and I'll, I'll explain a little history of how that's how I sort of got into this universe. But uh, the one thing I, I guess I, the only real initial comment is I wasn't necessarily saying that uh, because it's complex, oh, we should give up. Um, I just think that because it's complex, you're not going to get like random person using it. You're only going to get like HFT people, right? Like <laughs> at some level, the complexity that has exists right now is like you're only going to get kind of like the people who are smart enough to understand otherwise they're kind of going to get screwed and i think that that's that's just like fundamentally different than how proof of work is sold to the end user which is plug-in machine <laughs> hash you know it's like it, it's just the cognitive over like and i think it's great that like you know these systems exist because they're complicated um, but I am just trying to point out that if we want to get to a world where like these things are used widely by everyone, then, um, you may, it may, it may, these systems still seem a little too, uh, 
too complicated. Um, that being said, I mean, the, this, this, what is money question? Um, you know, I, I, I think I, I, I ended up leaving trading because I, as, as, as trite as the story will, will sound, I, I was at, uh, I was at Burning Man and I was trying to ask myself what this question was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know, I know. That's, that's why I had to add this, this trite, trite. <laughs> I love it, man. No, nothing to be shameful of. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> and, and so I, I was at Burning Man and, uh, you know, I was talking with my friend a bunch about, uh, you know, like, what is the definition of value? Like, which is sort of very closely related to this question of money because, I have this really good friend of mine um, who I sort of actually sometimes help with some art projects. She did this kind of crazy art project in uh, 2015 and 16 where she drew random line graphs in front of an audience. And then she she went and, and went on like Charles Schwab and then she went and sort of manipulated the price of penny stocks to match the line graph she just drew. And then she auctioned off the paintings immediately and she sold a lot of them, like hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars worth of this, which is, it's just basically market manipulation portraits. And so that's one wow. of those things where, and afterwards she, after she sold everything, she asked everyone like, what does value, what does value mean in this entire event? And that was one of the things that kind of made me have this epiphany of like, okay, yeah, really m money is definitely a, a large portion of consensus. But then there is a large portion that's like just raw resource consumption, human life surviving biology type of stuff. And somehow, I think during during that 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 year at Burning Man, that was when it clicked for me that cryptocurrencies are the only thing that I've ever seen that has been able to directly convert one type of value to the other with with like without exogenous kind of things happening. Um where like you have this resource driven value, which is kind of this endogenous, you know, you, you know, you need it. So you're, you know, at, at a certain point, you're willing to do anything to get it versus the type of consensus based value, which is, you know, valuing art or valuing stock manipulation scratches. Um, and yeah, there's, there's something, there's something innate to proof of work in my mind that connects those two things of like, this resource that if we don't consume, we die, which energy is not quite that, but very close to that nowadays. And we somehow converted it to something that's like a pure consensus thing. And then maybe that proof of stake will be able to obviate it and make it fully consensus based only. But in my mind, it, there still needs to be some, some, some tiny connection to this sort of intrinsic biological value. Um, but maybe that, maybe that, maybe, maybe that's false. That's probably uh, that's probably one of the most uh, interesting parts of this debate, uh, and uh, I got into Bitcoin uh, 20, 2010, 2011, like really early on, precisely because I thought um, of, uh, of of that process. You know, it was one of the few things that you could think of that was very seemingly elegant, taking you know uh, some resource that was you know physically difficult, whatever. Uh, to to manufacture and then converting it into into money. Um, the you know deeper you dive into that though, the more the sort of dream uh, sort of fades away a little bit. Uh, unfortunately, that's just not the case with Bitcoin. Uh, in it's not uh, you know something like like 
you know, gold, which is truly a physically scarce resource. And, you know, it's, it's just many, it's just manipulated by the art process, which happens, uh, uh, by, uh, uh, by just raw processes that happen in space, um, uh, thermal, uh, you know, uh, what is it called? F- nuclear fusion, whatever it may be. I don't, I'm not really an expert here. Tarun, you're obviously a physicist, so you know, you know this stuff. Uh, but, um, uh, the 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 concept of you know transitioning something uh, you know uh, expensive into money directly and it basically being a one way function uh, seems like a elegant uh, uh, elegant statement. Uh, it seems almost like one of those eureka moments, like a clean mathematical structure that yes, I have something of value. It transferred it into into money, and uh, it's it's one way. You cannot move back. Therefore, the new money that was created out of this expensive resource must be valuable. Is truly an interesting premise, except that ultimately. In Bitcoin, there is the last step, the last mile, and the last mile is everything that people keep missing, which is that last mile ultimately ends up being consensus. And consensus is really the last gatekeeper to really achieving this amazing dream of really having this thing, which truly, you know, we have transplanted from a a resource uh, that was very expensive to produce into money directly, and it's one way. Uh, it's that last mile is breaks down this this entire argument. Um, if we instead, for example, we had this mythical new Bitcoin, which generated uh, coins out of thin air based on some very expensive process, and these coins did not require any form of uh, of global consensus that would ultimately be a much stronger argument because you now don't really rely on what others believe this to be worth uh, uh, anything this thing is worth it because i can take this without the que- without questioning really anybody else without really having to rely on anybody else and um, and transact with it that makes it valuable but ultimately even that you know utopian version of bitcoin even that still has sort of a last meter problem, which is that ultimately the receiving party needs to believe and needs to agree, achieve consensus that this thing is valuable. You know, the the U.S. Uh, dollar is not valuable because we you know have general consensus over it being valuable it's because it there is a gigantic army of people in uniforms and in machine guns tanks and jails backing this up that this thing is valuable and there is no question about it and if you do not think this is valuable you know there is consequences to it that's what makes us dollar valuable uh there is no such thing for bitcoin Ultimately, it is on the recipient's view that this thing is valuable. And ultimately, uh, even further for the current uh, Bitcoin implementation, it has these crazy amounts of, uh, of risks that are at the last mile with the consensus, with the global consensus, actually maintaining this global ledger. So you could have systemic risks like network partitioning, like people leaving uh, the network and hash power reducing, therefore it being susceptible to attacks, total reorgs, total uh, rewriting of transactions. There's so many intrinsic attacks here that are possible just because they're possible with any consensus protocol. It's not just Bitcoin, it's any proof of stake protocol will have the same problems. Ultimately, the only thing that matters here is this uh, this uh, last mile, and that is what people believe this to be valuable. Uh, and prime example of this empirically is uh, Ripple. Useless, but people believe it to be valuable, so it's valuable. IOTA, it doesn't even work. It's not even out there. It's literally been shut down for a month, but it's a top uh, cryptocurrency because people believe it to be valuable. Bitcoin, 
has zero of the functionality of Ethereum, has the same energy expenditure, maybe slightly more than Ethereum, uh, yet it's much more valuable because people believe it to be valuable. It has a brand. That's really all that drives ultimately the value of all these systems. It's really what people are willing to pay, what you're willing to pay for the product that I'm selling. So I guess one one thing I would add to that is... Uh... You know, if we look at the types of things that people value basically on consensus only and not need need not in a needs driven way, um, we basically end up finding that the and when I say consensus only, I actually mean things like art or things where the cost of production is completely divorced from the actual final resulting price. Um, in, in the case of something like art, um we we find that these 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 consensus based pricing methods have the problem that they're only really good for pricing webland goods so webland goods are goods where the uh the price increases as demand uh or as as a uh, sort of yeah like it it has the opposite of your normal behavior right so normally you know the price of something increases when the demand goes up or the supply goes down um, in a Webland good, it's actually a weird thing where where the uh, price goes up as as the sort of you know this cachet goes up. Uh, rather, the, the demand goes up as the uh, as the price goes as up. The price, yeah, sorry, sorry. That's, uh, and so so the demand going up as the price goes up is something that like always hap- seems to happen in these consensus based things, whereas things kind of end up reverting to a market price more clearly for normal goods that have traditional pricing, like like a, a, the price of bread is super competitive uh, and it has sort of sort of a reversion behavior where like once some participants start moving the price too far in one direction, there will always be someone who comes to undercut because there's very little stickiness to the, the brand in a lot of ways versus these, these things like art where it's like so tied to this instantaneous brand that you need consensus on. So the question is, will cryptocurrencies ever be able to break out of being super useful for Webland goods, predominantly Webland? Because at that point, that's when it's kind of you really hit society. Absolutely agreed. I think currently cryptocurrencies are effectively Webland goods. And, uh, uh, you know, unlike other I mean, I see this breaking out uh, the second that people demand Bitcoin for more than future price growth. Uh, if people are like, I need Bitcoin because it has a critical solution to a problem that I have, or I need Bitcoin because it will feed me and my family, then uh, that uh, until that that's the case, then this is <laughs> very hard to break out of a Veblen good. Got it. Great. The question from audience member Tanner Allard. This is actually a comment, but it has sort of inspired the question. So he says, if dominant means more popular, yeah, POS is more popular with new projects as a better mechanism for layer one, if dominant means more effective while preserving some ideal L1 properties, then no. So you can respond to that, but the question that sort of got inspired from this for me is the new projects that are coming on board, why are they all POS and very few are POW? And this is for both. Um, You don't need to reinvent the wheel on their stickiness to the initial brands. And so, you know, we already know there's dominant POW competitors in privacy, smart contracts, and just raw uh, store value. So any new competitors getting into there would 
or have sort of exponentially increasing hurdles hurdle rate over the existing contenders. Whereas with proof of stake, it's still definitely a wide open field, especially if, you know, as Kevin said, there's like a use case, like, I don't know, you disintermediate some weird derivatives exchange that happens to trade, you know, like X billion dollars a year. And maybe that, like that, that's certainly probably more suited uh, for proof of stake and proof of work. Um, unlike consortia, certainly. Well, but if you're talking about decentralized finance, is that a characteristic necessarily of POS protocols? Yeah. So what I mean by that is actually there are like consortiums of exchanges that share settlement resources akin to kind of how DTCC is structured or, or, but, but, you know, with derivatives exchanges, very different clearing than it is with, with something like DTCC, which is how equities are, are cleared. Um, what I mean by that is like someone might make a Libra like consortium that like is just derivatives, like derivative exchanges, smart contracting language, and each of them can implement their local exchange as a smart contract, but they all have some stake in this consortium and that there are, okay, I understand. I yeah. So sorry, that was sort of maybe a, a complicated example. Um, I do think an interesting place where proof of stake is getting even more stress testing is really in, in the DeFi land because DeFi contracts, their their token values are, are really tied to true cash flows, like their cash flows from lending or cash flows from derivatives in the case of like synthetics. Um, and people are voting on those cash flows. And like, I think I think you're going to have like the really fast paced proof of stake experiments in DeFi and then the kind of slower ones in the layer ones because there's so much bigger of a surface area. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's just because there already are dominant players. It's it's kind of really hard to imagine beating Bitcoin at what Bitcoin does. Okay, got it. Kevin, input from you, and then we'll move on to concluding remarks. Uh, I definitely agree. It's very hard to beat Bitcoin at brand. Um, God knows people have tried and uh, people are trying. Uh, but uh, the other reason is um, uh, you can't get uh, to... Uh, uh, actually having, you know, if you want this to be used uh, at high performance and you want this to be used globally, Bitcoin can't actually do that. Um, this is not a, uh, a failure of Bitcoin alone. This is actually a failure of all proof-of-work systems. I'm sure uh, Teron uh, knows well, proof-of-work systems are these um, uh, these uh, synchronous systems that have a bounded, uh, you know, uh, uh, bandwidth. Uh, they have bounded uh, performance uh, um, uh, requirements and, guarantee and, you know, properties so they literally cannot scale it's it's a fundamental limitation so the best uh, uh system that we have known um sort of best mechanism to to get out of that mode uh of synchronicity uh and uh this this high overhead that proof of work uh, uh encumbers is through uh is through proof of stake so um it's a, it's a bit of a weird uh, situation that bitcoin is in it's in this weird limbo state where it can't perform it can't be used as day-to-day -day money uh, it, uh, the best, uh, uh, argument for it is a store of value, except that even as a store of value, uh, it can disappear at any day. Uh, hard to believe, but it could, um, it's not backed by force. It's not backed by anything besides just the whims of a few miners. So, um, uh, even that argument ultimately at the last mile kind of breaks down because people could just believe this not to be valued at anything. So consensus could break this, um, you know, population consensus could, could com completely destroy Bitcoin. So even as a, uh, store of value it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense 
Okay, great. Time for concluding remarks. So we will have Tarun go first. So just sort of synthesize your thoughts and then maybe mention a few things you picked up from Kevin along the way. Yeah, so I think, you know, fundamentally, I I, I would say I, this the notion of proof of work winning over proof of stake, to some extent, you know, maybe you measure that in market cap, maybe you measure that in total number of users, maybe you measure that in non-hodling addresses. However you measure it, I just think that at its current state and with our current knowledge of the security model, it's extremely hard to imagine that within one year or within 10 years that, well, maybe not 10 years, like within five years, that proof of stake will actually be able to be treated mentally by its users in a very similar way to the way proof of work is. And the other question is a question of approximation. Will it ever really be able to get to the same level of capital efficiency in a short time span? Um, and so I think those two kind of compounding factors make it a little bit hard to imagine that it will be able to to make up for lost the lost time of, of kind of the the branding and consensus and ledger state that the proof of work networks have that has kind of been deemed uh, valuable. Now, I think Kevin and I agree in a lot of places. So it, it's not necessarily, I think it's more that we agree on or disagree on the notion of time scale and on the notion of, uh, you know, what, what it would look like for kind of a, a, a reasonable, usable proof of stake uh, universe to, to occur. And I guess maybe I'm, because I think of everything from the lens of, of really trading, it just does not seem to me that we're kind of, we've kind of figured out even from the market microstructure standpoint for like how these proof of stake coins should, should have a valuation model. There's not really a, a, a very clear model and not that there's a super clear one for Bitcoin, but at least you have a kind of, you've bounded the space by energy costs. Um, so I leave you with the, the regards of, do you believe that first mover advantage will last forever? Or do you believe that, you know, someone can really overtake, uh, take, overtake kind of the current competitors? And my belief is that the complexity will make it harder to scale to more users. Um, and, and that could change just does not seem like it's it's, it's quite a solve it, it doesn't feel like it's a solved problem okay great your turn for the closing statement kevin uh sure yeah so um uh first and foremost uh obviously uh, tarun is probably one of the uh, people i respect most in the space um uh but uh, the the arguments on um on uh, this being viewed from uh, from sort of a oh this is simple tried and true and uh, we're reducing the space of uh, of uh, programmable functions down to just energy expenditure. Um, it seems reasonable, but ultimately, I don't think it's a uh, it's a very strong argument. Um, things uh, you know that initially used to look very complex, people understood them more and more, and uh, they became the new standard. Um, but uh, to concede, uh, Bitcoin uh, uh, and proof of work uh, have branding. Um, and especially people outside of this group of us uh, in the crypto space uh, don't necessarily get the 
complexities of what proof of work means versus what proof of stake means. So they tend to rely on just, you know, branding really, like what are people saying about something versus another? And obviously Bitcoin has had a 10 year advantage on this uh, and a lot more stakeholders than proof of stake systems coming in. So uh, there is a real existential threat to uh, proof of stake, just not being taken uh, 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 seriously, or rather having to prove more than what Bitcoin had to prove. Bitcoin just had to prove that it was this new thing. Uh, whereas proof of stake has to prove not just that it's this new thing, but that it also does work and that it has a real value over proof of work. Um, so people that are building proof of stake systems will need to be able to prove that these systems are actually going to be used uh, for high performance, whatever it may, high performance needs, whatever it may be, uh, and that uh, uh, you know people are going to move wholesale to them. So it's a much bigger roadblock for proof of stake systems to uh, to overcome than uh, obviously Bitcoin has already had to overcome. Bitcoin just had to really overcome the narrative and nothing else. Uh, so uh, I, I think uh, proof of work systems and Bitcoin, uh, really, what Bitcoin is ultimately down to it is a uh, globally at this point globally agreed upon new asset that we can trade and speculate on. Um, and uh, this asset uh, at this point has pretty well-known properties as far as what it can actually be used for. Uh, pretty great for speculation purposes, um, but uh, uh, much outside of that, uh, it seems to have limited exposure into uh, beliefs about proof, uh, you know, sort of sort of value, which is obviously not the case because you need to really take a look at the full picture uh, with four clear eyes. I need to take a look at the last mile that ultimately is, you know, something like gold is actually store of value because there is absolutely nothing besides just, you know, physical limitations to it uh, that make it valuable uh, and not consensus necessarily. Even actually, even with gold, consensus really rules at the end, uh, truly speaking. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, sort of, sort of rambling on thoughts here. Um, uh, you know, Bitcoin is going to be here for a long time. Is basically the point because it has proved uh, something new and does not really need to prove much else. It just needs to survive for a very long time, and I think it will survive for a very long time. Proof of stake has a much bigger uh, uphill battle, uh, but I think the space for proof of stake is fascinatingly wide for how it can be designed, how it can be encoded. You know what you can do with it. It's it's really interesting space, and uh, uh, I think as we move forwards in the next uh, you know ten years of the space, uh, if we really want to go down the route of you know uh, really exploring and pushing the boundaries of what assets are and what uh, and how they they are trend you know uh, transacted and how they operate, then I think we'll really be seeing these more on proof stake based systems where there's going to be more experimentation, uh, more activity happening. Uh, not on uh, proof of uh, uh, work, uh, you know, this is a store of value type systems only. Uh, so Ethereum uh, is a great uh, environment for this, but I think Ethereum at this point is also slightly outdated. Um, but even though it's just a fantastic platform still, uh, but ultimately, obviously, all these guys can be overtaken. So uh, I don't know. I think proof of work is here to stay. Uh, it's not going anywhere, but uh, I would probably say proof of stake uh, is uh, is uh, you know uh, something to to behold in the next ten years. Okay, great, Kevin and Tarun. It's been an honor to have you come on the show and debate. So POW and POS has been an age old debate. It would be great to see how things unfold from here. So how can our listeners get in touch with you? Starting with Tarun. Um, Twitter. Uh, it's my name, Tarun Chidra. 
feel free to send me a message. And Kevin? Yeah, same Twitter at um, also my name, Kevin Sekniki. Feel free, feel free to troll me and tell me how I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. All right. So listeners, we would love to hear from you and to have you join the debate via Twitter. Definitely vote in the post-debate poll and also feel free to leave your comments. We look forward to seeing you in future episodes of the Blockchain Debate Podcast. Consensus optional, proof of thought required. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tarun. This was awesome. Yeah, I learned a lot. I would like to say thank you again to Kevin and Tarun. I suspect this will be an episode I'll revisit from time to time, given its high information density. Indeed, the episode actually leaves me with more questions than prior to the recording. One interesting takeaway that I had is that one weakness of POS systems is that, ironically, popular DeFi applications threaten the security of the network by inducing token capital flight from security staking to DeFi staking. And another interesting takeaway is that liquid energy derivatives play an important role in helping POW miners achieve certain financial outcomes, whereas a similar mechanism seems largely absent in POS systems. So, don't forget to vote in our post-debate Twitter poll. This will be live for a few days after the release of this episode. Also, feel free to say hi or post your feedback for our show on Twitter. If you like the show, don't hesitate to give us 5 stars on iTunes or wherever you listen to this. And be sure to check out our other episodes with a variety of debate topics. Bitcoin store value status, tokenization and smart contracts, DeFi, Bitcoin happening, China's future in blockchain. Thanks for joining us on the debate today. I'm your host, Richard Yan, and my Twitter is Genso09, G-E-N-T-S-O-09. Our show's Twitter is Block Debate. See you at our next debate.